This is The Lab with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Each week, we talk about a work and a theme. This week, it's the film The Last Supper from 1995, starring Cameron Diaz. And the theme is Enemies. Helen, start us off. The scapegoat carries the lack that cannot be faced by a given group, individual, or society. The scapegoat or enemy function operates in a similar way to fantasy. We keep our eyes riven on fantasy because we don't want to face the lack in ourselves and the lack in the world we inhabit. We keep enemies in mind because we don't want to imagine that the unbroken world we fantasize about is a logical impossibility. We self-sabotage our way to retaining the fantasy of a utopian future because we can't face the fact that the lacking present is all we have, even despite the fact that it is the only within this lacking present that the possibility of emancipation can be found. Capitalism is a way of ordering society that hitches a ride on fantasy, selling off the emancipatory present for a future that will never come. The enemy becomes a comfort blanket under this disquieting order of things. When the ideology of liberalism fails us and we are faced with its many contradictions, the enemy keeps the promise of liberalism's potency alive. We imagine that our enemy prevents us from receiving what we think that capitalism would otherwise inevitably provide for us. He blots out our horizon but he is just a shimmerer, because behind him there is nothing, no utopian world of harmony and balance and success, just the same broken system that has already broken us already. I said already twice. Hitler himself discovered this. After liberal capitalism had failed the German state during the interwar years, the all-powerful Jew was his paranoid invention to keep the promise of the perfect Aryan state alive. The Jew became a necessary figure for Hitler. The fantasy of his project utterly relied on this internal enemy. But as Hitler engineered the deaths of millions, his project ultimately failed. Ridding his society of those groups that he imagined to be all-powerful, uncastrated in psychoanalytic terms, did nothing to rid his society of all the contradictions that would always inevitably beset it. The final solution was no solution at all. We can never get to harmony and balance, just as Hitler discovered that he could never get to the thousand-year Reich. We can never get rid of contradiction, and it is by avoiding contradiction, in fact, that we create our greatest suffering. In the words of Irish comedian Dylan Moran, war isn't conflict, it's the inability to do conflict. Conflict is the positive tarrying with contradiction that can lead to societal change. It's the messy work of psychoanalysis. It's taking seriously society's symptoms as well as our own. It's debating issues constructively. It's accepting those that we don't like and the fact that we might be wrong. Liberal capitalism is the social order that has done the greatest ever job of repressing the inevitable contradiction, telling us that it is the most natural societal order that there is. It tells us that it's all about agency, material and moral, and its greatest contradiction, surplus value, is kept from our perception through the most compelling destruction of them all, commodity fetishism. When Germany was materially punished at at the first global meeting of liberal capitalism, the Treaty of Versailles, the reason was a moral one, World War I was entirely Germany's fault. When their industrial lands were taken, when they were handed a bill they could never repay, when hyperinflation set in, when loans were handed to them and suddenly retracted after the Wall Street crash, and when all of this was instigated because of Germany's sole culpability, it was inevitable that the politics of identity would take hold. Germany's economic precarity created the conditions for Hitler, which is why the question deployed by the smug graduate students in the Last Supper to ascertain who is friend and who is foe is really just a silly one. In 1909, the Hitler you meet in a pub in Vienna would not inevitably become the Hitler of 1939. When we experience the existential precarity wrought by capital, we cling on to identity signifiers, transforming contradiction into opposition. Hitler transformed the pain of the reality of Germany's economic humiliation into the facile opposition of fascistic politics. Many people live under those same humiliating economic conditions today. The neoliberal order refuses to face up to the fact that papering over the principal contradiction of capitalism creates immense social disquiet. Tinkering with financial systems won't fix things. Disciplining certain groups and raising others to the status of saints won't work. Using the aesthetics of emancipation to marketize more products will also fail. In fact, all these factors contribute to the deepening of the lines drawn by the politics of identity. Identity politics are a symptom of the disquiet of capitalism. It's a symptom that tells us that the system is failing people, that the alienation it engenders is too much to bear. There comes a point when the trauma of avoiding contradiction becomes more painful than the trauma of actually facing it. 
Perhaps we are at that moment now. When society is at its sickest, crying out in pain, we need to do the work of dealing with the true nature of our subjectivity and the real functionings of capital and the fact that we live in a world that will always already be broken with ourselves and others who are always already broken too. This is difficult work, of course, but the ordinary unhappiness of facing up to contradiction is less toxic and ultimately less painful than all the suffering that comes with our libidinal investment in the fallacy of the ideology of promise. That was great. Nina, you're up. Thank you. That was uh, fantastic, Helen. Um, so The Last Supper, 1995 film, I saw, saw it roughly around the time it came out. And I think it's, for me, part of a, a sort of wave of sort of black comedies or a particular kind of mid to late 90s humour. You also see in the films of Todd Solon's uh, Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness. Um and other films at this time that were trying to kind of push certain contradictions um, in a sort of particularly macabre but amusing way. And it's something of an interesting question to ask whether this film could have been made now in terms of the way it depicts particular characters, um, particularly the black PhD student, and I would say the Jewish character as well. I think it would be very difficult to for a studio to put out a film in which um, these people were uh, malevolent, you know, that these these bearers of these identities were, were actually playing malevolent characters. I think one of the great levelling features of um, this kind of tendency in 90s films, however, was almost to make it clear that everybody was malevolent. There was a kind of equality of, of horror, and all the characters in this film uh, are, to some extent, um, irredeemable. And that question of who is uh, actually... Uh, you know, moral and immoral is is basically the the kind of subject of the film. It's a film about, if you like, the logical consequences of uh, a liberalism that ends up being completely intolerant and liberalism in the American sense, not the British sense. And I think this word liberal has, has sort of been transformed in this hegemonic American way. <laughs> so people in Britain start to use liberal in the American sense. Um, but let's say, you know, these are kind of, they're all graduate students. They, they're drinking wine uh, constantly, perhaps as a marker of their sort of like class superiority or a certain kind of um, relation to taste. And taste is a very important aspect of this uh, film. And yeah, in, in, in a sense, the one thing that apart from their, their apparently coherent moral views that's lacking is action. They are um, lacking in energy, and it's only the decision that they make in terms of how to treat their their invited guests that kind of energizes them. You you never actually see them doing any schoolwork or you, you know university work. They never actually seem to be studying, uh, which I think is also uh, important. Um, and the actions that they take, this kind of macabre decision that they make in order to deal with uh, their supposedly intolerant guests. Um, also creates a kind of libidinal energy so they become much more sexual at least a couple of the characters who are um, in a relationship become almost kind of obsessed with with having sex or at least one of the women becomes very nymphomaniac um, as if the kind of uh, actions that they're taking uh, finally getting around to doing something about the problem uh, gives them a kind of uh, demonic libidinal uh, courage so i wanted to pick up on um this point about what happens when liberalism itself becomes intolerant or when well-meaning people, people who think they're on the side of the good, um, actually become absolutely immoral and their behaviour takes on a very disastrous and violent um, aspect. Um, and there's a very good essay in a tablet magazine, which has been quite superb, actually, um, on various cultural discussions it, it, you can find it online. It's, uh, it's published many uh, very thoughtful and lengthy articles in the last two, three years that I've come across. Anyway, and there's an article called Moral Cruelty in the Left by somebody called Blake Smith from June last year. And in this piece, um, Blake Smith is looking at the work of the Jewish moral philosopher Judith Sklar. And she was very interested in this category of moral cruelty particularly cruelty committed by those who claim to hate oppression. So the idea that it's okay to hate or even punish violently those who you believe hate, um, because somehow they've become exempt from the usual, um, you know, discursive or rational or liberal norms. And 
clearly in the film, the, the question of the conversation over dinner, it is not a proper dialogue. You know, it's it's a kind of either or. It's like, yeah, the friend-enemy distinction. And the moment the line is crossed, then the, the person, the guest is, is, you know, becomes the scapegoat, becomes the person who can be hated and therefore um, punished. So in this essay, um, Smith points out that Schkar warned Quote, the liberalism can degenerate into a cult of victimhood that permits our sadistic desires to be passed off as unimpeachable virtue. I think in this regard, it's extremely important, like any politics worthy of the name, must proceed on the basis um, of the memory or the recognition that we are all capable of cruelty and that nobody is exempt from committing acts of horror, either in a historical context or in the present um, because the moment people start to imagine that they're exempt from the possibility of committing any wrong because they are they have the right position they're morally pure um, is when uh, things start to go terribly terribly wrong and in a recent essay by Giles Fraser a similar point was made Giles Fraser was formerly the canon at St Paul's in London a very important job within the Church of England and he sort of came to prominence around the time of Occupy um, because Occupy in London took place in the city of London which is where St Paul's is which has its own laws it's a very strange uh, legal situation but that's where the city is and Giles Fraser allowed the protesters to camp in the grounds of St Paul's which caused a lot of problems with the police and ultimately, because he sided with the protesters against the police and against the state, he was stripped of his job at St Paul's and now preaches at a much smaller church in Cannington, near where I live. And he's a very interesting man. He's extremely reflective. He's trained in philosophy. He wrote a PhD on Nietzsche. He worked with Gillian Rose. And he wrote in a, a very interesting piece um, around the time of Easter, focusing on this question of victim and victimised, um, well, victimizer i suppose victim and victimizer or bully and victim let's say he says in cancel culture there is no way of coming back from the taint of guilt in cancel culture everyone is encouraged to see themselves as a victim but no one has the courage to admit they have been the victimizer cancel culture offers no redemption so encourages only the denial of one's complicity and he ties this very much to um the crucifixion of Jesus and the, the way in which the mob turns on Jesus. And he himself describes situations in which he was both bullied at school, but then also was the bully in other situations. And I think an interesting next step, perhaps, for this culture that we currently find ourselves in would be, let's say, an honest discussion of the way in which we are all capable and have all undoubtedly played a role of um, treating the other with cruelty in the name of the good or what we thought was the right thing to do at the time you know not everybody is a pure victim you know this idea that um you know it doesn't make sense for everyone to be a victim and there, for there to be very few actual victimizers this isn't uh possible and i just want to finish with a very interesting quote from um sarah shulman who's been very uh, good on this uh sort of tendency of moral cruelty on the left for a long time. She's a, a long-term lesbian activist in New York. She's written very beautifully about the city, about the AIDS crisis um, and so on. And, and she wrote a, a book that was perceived in quite to be quite controversial in a certain way called Conflict is Not Abuse from 2017. And you can already see from the title why some people might take issue with children. But what she was trying to do was identify this tendency that she'd observed that was going on in activist circles which involves scapegoating, shunning, and so on. And and trying to say, look, just because there are disagreements, this doesn't make the person disagreeing with you an abuser. You know, this is a kind of wild overuse of this kind of language. And in an interview she did from around the time uh, with LitHub, she said the following, I'm amazed at how often I'm asked to hurt people. Why did you invite her? Why are you working with them? Why did you go to their party? We're often asked to shun or socially isolate other people without ever talking to them. And people do this all the time. Your girlfriend broke up with someone, so you're going to be cruel to the other person for the rest of their life? It's unethical. Pick up the phone and call the person you're being asked to hurt and ask, why is this happening?
And I think this is very profound, you know, what she's saying here. It's very simple, but it's a very kind of clear uh, picture of this use of this language of exclusion, ostracism, you know, invoking the idea of pure victims and pure abused people and so on. Um, and I think the most significant scene in the film for me comes down to this question of taste and whether politics is actually in in the end. And this is something that Benjamin, I think, has made a few times this point that a lot of what's happening in contemporary um, political life um, is related to the question of aesthetics, the aesthetics of, of politics. And this is a, obviously a deep kind of question. But one of the, the victims of the superior, morally correct group is um, of a woman who has poor taste in literature. And <laughs> they even make this comment at the time of their, you know, sort of cruel action towards her you know she just had bad taste you know did she deserve to die just because she doesn't like the correct novels um and i think this is a this is actually one of the most revealing moments of the whole film because it, it points out the fact that so much of um politics is actually um an aesthetic question um masquerading as a moral um crusade all right i'm up next so in this film, each week a group of grad students invites a conservative over for dinner. One week they invite someone who is extraordinarily far-right, even by their standards. He's a Gulf War veteran who harbors anti-Semitic views, and he accuses them of cowardice. They're not willing to kill for their beliefs, and in the veteran's eyes, this means they're all talk and no action. The verbal sparring escalates into a physical conflict, and soon one of the students has a broken arm, and the veteran has been stabbed in the back. They hide the veteran's body in the backyard and use him to fertilize a vegetable garden. You might expect the students to be horrified by all this, but instead they feel elated. The veteran has taught them to view conservatives as enemies and to kill them on that basis. They set about having more conservatives over for dinner. The killings become premeditated and increasingly flippant. They kill a librarian for rubbishing the catcher in the rye. They kill a man who tries to recant. They almost kill a child who opposes sex education. One of the grad students goes so far as to suggest the kid just needs a nice hard dick to shut her mouth. Carl Schmidt envisioned the political as a struggle among peoples for survival. For Schmidt, each people is a group of friends defined in large part by a shared understanding of who counts as an enemy. An enemy for Schmidt is someone you are willing to kill, purely because they are an enemy, even if you have nothing against them personally. An enemy can be killed for political reasons, even if they are a personal friend. Friends share a way of life, and the enemies threaten that way of life. The way of life can consist of any values which the friends find relevant, even wholly arbitrary criteria like skin color or parentage. For Schmidt, the making of friend-enemy distinctions is a fundamental part of what it is to be human, and insofar as we try to deny it, we are denying our own nature. Schmidt was a Nazi, and undergraduate students don't like Schmidt's view when they associate it with Nazism. But you can make students agree with Schmidt. First, you introduce a group of people who think in a Schmidtian way who might consider the student or people the student sympathize with an enemy. Then you ask the student what we should do about this group. Invariably, the student concludes that if this group really is committed to thinking in this way, we can only respond by violently suppressing them. Of course, once we are targeting a group of people with violence purely because we think they threaten our way of life, we are just as Schmidtian as they are. The result is a Schmidt spiral. The more we think like Schmidt, the more the enemy thinks like Schmidt, and the friend-enemy distinction is reified. It feels more and more real. How do you go back from that? What's the way out? I think there are two key ways to resist this kind of thinking. First, we can argue that the narrative that we are broken up into peoples with fixed ways of life that can be straightforwardly threatened is a mirage. The friends only feel they share this way of life because they are imagining a group of enemies who are its antithesis. To have this idea of a shared way of life, you need an antithesis against which to define it. Conversely, this means that you can weaken belief in the existence of an enemy by calling into question the existence of the fixed unitary way of life. If unity is something that we politically construct rather than something primordial that we use politics to defend, it is always being reconstructed and renegotiated in ways that incorporate different sets of beliefs and practices. We don't have to understand the unity in a thick way which excludes large numbers of our fellow citizens. We can thin the understanding, asking people to commit to looser features, like a political or legal system, rather than a particular language, religion, or ethnicity. In other words, we can prefer civic republicanism to nationalism. That's the move I usually make with students in class. The other move is more controversial. 
It is also possible to argue that even when we disagree with people, our disagreement is motivated by different conceptions of the same abstraction, the good. If we are all trying to understand what's good, what's the best way to live, then we are fundamentally on the same universal journey, albeit a journey we make from wildly different directions. Derek Parfit calls this climbing the mountain, and Gandhi suggests that there are many paths to the same truth. Parfit and Gandhi take values very seriously and care very much about getting value questions right, but they are forgiving of differences of opinion because they see disagreement as a well-meaning mistake. The Schmidian enemy is trying to destroy your way of life, but fellow travelers in pursuit of truth are trying to understand the same thing you are trying to understand in their own way. When we disagree with an enemy, the threat of violence hangs in the air. But when we disagree with a fellow traveler, it is an opportunity for us to learn from each other's mistakes. To succeed with this kind of move, you've got to get your discussion partner to take the good seriously as a universal abstraction, which we are all conceptualizing differently. In an era where moral realism is the exception rather than the rule, that's often too much to ask. Most of the time I make the other move and undermine the account of primordial unity. It's the move Hobbes makes when he argues that prior to the state there exists a fractious multitude rather than a united people. In the postmodern world, you get further with Hobbes than you do with Gandhi, even if you're using both to get to the same place. I'd forgotten, you know, all of those um, movies from the 90s that are great. They're like Mm. the happiness and all this kind of stuff. And obviously this movie, and it's so funny. It really is a brilliant movie. And... You know, obviously it's pointing to these things, you know, so there was in the 90s, you know, the kind of um, unwilling to offend, what do you call it, political correctness, you know, as a version of woke or whatever. But you could still in mainstream media talk about this and, and bring it to light and stuff. So it definitely says something about like a textural difference between the PC era of the 90s and where we are today. And obviously that textual difference is a financial difference as in you know um almost like the 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 more uh extreme capitalism becomes the more we can't talk about the real reasons why identity politics happens and the more the more identity politics happens as sort of a life jacket to prevent us from having to face the traumatic reality of the material functionings of our material conditions um and then, yeah, so it's this absolute, this, this rise of identity politics and this absolute, do absolutely anything to tar anybody who tries to address the material reasons why identity politics are occurring with the brush of, this is you know, victim blaming, you're a fascist, blah, 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 blah. When, yeah, there's these movies, brilliant movies in the 90s, that sort of very slightly kind of surreal humour. Ha- have you seen the movie Happiness, Benjamin? It's absolutely fucking hilarious. I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, I mean, to- Todd Solondz, I think perhaps more than any anyone else, in at least in three or four of his movies, I mean, really pushed this kind of, um, you know, liberal hypocrisy um, in this sort of bleakest way. I mean, these are very profoundly unsettling and awkward films, you know, and I think this question of discomfort um, around identity, around sex, around race, around disagreement... Um, you know, he just kind of mines really, really brutally. It's kind of, yeah. you know, and I think I think a lot of those films in the 90s were really trying to kind of use that sort of, um, yeah, discomfort to make a political point. And, and you know, the, the ending of this film, we haven't really sort of covered in a certain way yet, is actually very ambiguous. You know, it's not necessarily a kind of... Um, uh, I don't know, a, a, a good, clean, clean resolution. You know, I mean, the, the implication, at least as far as I, I read the film, is is that this, the cynical centrist or the cynical person who's able to kind of um, mobilise not only kind of crowds, but also to kind of understand the motivations of others and kind of, in a way, synthesise them, will always be the person who comes out on top, um, even when his own tactics sort of match the horror of the the kind of the moral zealot mm-hmm. you know that somehow by by occupying the centrist position um you know that that's 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 who will always win somehow yeah the last guest they invite is a proto uh, tucker carlson type mm. tv conservative who reveals in the course of the dinner that he doesn't actually believe any of this stuff he just says it as a way of promoting his own career and this causes them to be conflicted about whether 
they should kill him because he doesn't actually believe the stuff. The political scientist goes, well, it's even worse if he doesn't actually believe it. But most of the other people in the room are inclined to say, well, if he doesn't actually believe it, then then it doesn't matter. Yeah. Which is very odd. It's it's a kind of slightly unsatisfying conclusion to the film, I think, in some ways. But it, it kind of opens up some questions, too, about like how, you know, political systems reproduce themselves. You know, is the point that this is the kind of person who will always thrive regardless of what other people say, you know. And I think that point is like, it's always the other who believes, mm-hmm. you know, she yeah. makes this point. It's like, you know, so so he's the one who, who in a way doesn't believe and admits it and is actually very charming and, you know, personable and convinces them all in a way of, of his own bearing, you know, and he uses that against them ultimately. And, but yeah, this idea that, Actually, they they they've overly committed to their own moral position in a way that they 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 are forced to pull back from, um, you know that they they thought that they were kind of flexible liberal people, but actually it turns out that they're kind of moral zealots. Because yeah, it is that sort of liberal thing, isn't it? Like I I, I remember, you know, that you often hear this thing, especially in you know. I don't know, in, in the market system, which is like, don't be too, don't be too ideological, don't be too philosophical, don't be too committed to an idea or something, as if that's a solution. Mm. But that really, obviously, that don't be too this and the other is a total commitment to yes. what is the ideology of capitalism, which is, this is all natural, this is all fair, this is all, you know, all we have to do is stop being so religious or stop being so whatever. The, the fact is, though, that capitalism is a secular religion. The whole point is that if you are truthful, you are called a, a zealot. Well, it's funny because there is obviously people who are moral zealots who are just taking the I- ideology of capital, which is fundamentally becomes identity politics to the extreme. But when you speak of reasonable truth, you're called, you know, you could often be called these days sort of like reactionary or too much or just just give it a rest you know it's all just you know just go with it go with it this is yeah so actually the zealots today are the I mean you obviously have this term the radical centrist but that's I guess that's not really what I'm saying it's that if I think there needs and Zizek does this you know really brilliantly is reads capitalism not only as a material system but as a secularized religion and when you kind of see it that way you're like oh no that's zealotry right there. Well, I think capitalism in and of itself would be perfectly fine if we just all bought stuff and didn't have any particular beliefs. That would be very convenient. But because we aren't able to do that, uh, capitalism has to invent things for us to believe in that are compatible with it. And those things often get in the way of, of smooth functioning. I, I don't think any of the CEOs want it to be the case that if they take a stand or don't take a stand on a particular issue, different sets of people will boycott them. But at an aggregate level, it's more convenient to the system overall for people to feel strongly that particular groups of people are bad or are to blame for what's going on. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's like the, the religious element operates on the just, uh, you know, the ideology of promise that you can fill a lack with a product. So in that sense, that's that's the way it's religious. And yeah, and as you say, it's like it's it's much easier to be committed to a negative about a group or an individual because then you create this fantastical enemy that is the reason for the dysfunctioning system, not the fact that the system is dysfunctioning and we need the enemy to convince ourselves that otherwise it would be perfectly fine. Yeah, so you don't want to like commit to a positive idea. You can commit to this enemy idea, this commit to this get rid of idea. But yeah, we always um, seek to fulfill ourselves with uh, promotions and products uh, in a religious way. Yeah. This is where the question of lack actually becomes quite paradoxical because in a way, like, of course, we are lacking subjects in the psychoanalytic sense. You know, language creates this also, you know, we're maladaptive and all of those sorts of things. Language kind of demonstrates the fact that we're not um, whole and all of our relations are are sort of broken and, you know, everyday unhappiness and all that stuff. But at the same time, there is a kind of another lack um, that's kind of um, ideologically promoted by the system, which is 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 one of competition, is one of um, rivalry. You know, these are very old terms. You get them in Hobbes as well. Um, the reason why we we you know and Girard too, like the reason why we are competitive is because we want the same things or the same kinds of things. We're actually more similar than we are um, dissimilar, um, e- even when there's a 
kind of opposition and resentment encouraged between groups and di- division, you know, which invariably helps the bosses. And, you know, I mean, Marxists did try to say this for a very long time, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, actually, you know, encouraging division among the, um, among workers is actually, you know, uh, really on the side of capital, not on the side of uh, the emancipation of uh, the working class. Um, but I think if you look at someone like Bataille and his very different model of a general economy in which the sun is that which kind of, um, in a way presents excess, you know, that actually the problem is not lack, the problem is excess, there's yeah. too much stuff, you know, and then the idea of the potlatch and in a way the kind of ratcheting up of the gift giving and in a way we, we have this infinite debt that we can't really repay um, in terms of uh, our existence and our kind of relation to the sun and, and we can't ever kind of match the sun's gift as it were. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in how we start to think about this question de-escalation, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk about the friend-enemy distinction and, you know, of course, we could, on the one hand, propose going back to a kind of dialogic, liberal, you know, everyone has their reasons, let's sit down and talk about it, which is already difficult enough. I mean, there are many, many topics today that people will refuse to discuss and certain kinds of people who've already been marked and scapegoated who are beyond the, the pale and, and that creates their new divisions because then they go off and talk on their own and there isn't kind of... um actual dialogue often happening between people who disagree for for good reason um so we could go back to the kind of attempt to go back to kind of liberal you know rational you know philosophical dialogue um or um you know maybe try something even more kind of uh radical and chaotic in a sort of battalion (laughs) sense and i don't know what that would that would mean but i think it would actually be almost opposing a conception of lack, not the psychoanalytic conception of lack, but the idea that we're all competing, but, you know, rather have this image of desire as kind of plenitude and excess. And, you know, actually we've got all the time in the world to talk about these things, but I don't know how we would, how that would work as a political project. I think that the, the first thing is that like we are presented with lack as a bad thing that needs to mm-hmm. be filled rather than, yeah, this infinite lack being the the absolute generative and the absolute positive and the reason why we have stuff in the first place. And absolutely like crises of capitalism happen when there's too much stuff. Yeah. Um, there's too much, you know, it, too many houses. So houses become devalued or whatever. That's when like the, the bubble, impl- I mean, it's one of these weird things. So talking about like a crisis of capitalism is really weird because it's like, it always happens dialectically, like either, yeah, you either have too many houses or not enough, you know, either one or the other. But the thing is, I think if we, like, if we aren't, we aren't constantly told that the lack is a bad thing that needs to be filled, but rather a positive, then that's already sort of like maybe a step. The other thing is, you know, this, this certain groups are seen, you know, are, are whole and certain groups we have to absolutely, you know, believe the victim is something that's always, always said. But the funny thing is, is to be a subhuman subject is to be divided. And so to say that an individual or a group knows an experience in its totality is reductive, patronizing, potentially racist, sexist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because to be a functioning human, we are divided and we, we say things and we also have an unconscious. So it's almost like, yes, okay, we, we need to believe groups, we need to believe victims and hear what they have to say because there's absolutely a certain truth to it. Like, no one is saying that that's not an aspect of it. But you also have to listen to the unconscious. You know, so it's like, when you go to psychoanalysis, you don't go because, you know, your your words are listened to because of their actual meaning or what you think they mean. It's like, we never know what we actually mean. It's like always on an unconscious level. And that's why we also need divided other subjects. Like, you know, Hegel talks about this a lot in terms of the development of self-consciousness. Like the master-slave dialectic, for instance, doesn't work and has to be resolved into another stage of development because when you have a master and a slave, and obviously there's this, today, there's a very, you know, the master-slave dialectic in terms of identity politics, when we cast people as like absolute victims, it's like something that's like a real feature. But like when you have this sort of slave and this master, the slave is not a human subject. You know, it's not, they're not seen as the lacking other. And we need a human subject to be a whole human subject is to be divided and you need that divided lacking other in order to recognize yourself and without that you will get like a toxic society or you will like you like it just will not function so when we reduce a victim group or an individual to a perfect all-knowing being we are reducing them to the status of a non-human and we are also not listening to what they are actually saying which is like 
There's loads of examples. For, for instance, you know those um, protests at Clapham Common a few weeks ago in the UK? To be honest, there was a real, real psychoanalytic truth going on beyond the actual meaning of the words. And if you saw certain photos that um, were taken, there was a real, real obvious psychoanalytic meaning there that I think was very, very meaningful. But to be able to say it is quite shocking. And I probably won't even say what I really read into these images myself. But but that's where the truth is. And the truth is often shocking. And in order to get to that deeper functioning of the way society functions, we have to get to the deeper truth. And obviously, on a very, very basic level, it is very, very racist or sexist or particularist to, to say... And, you know, if we can't touch on a subject because it's too offensive, we know that we are treating a group as less than human because we don't want to offend them. That's actually how racism operates. I think part of the issue is that you know, the classical liberals, the Whiggish liberals with their progress narratives of things getting better and better, you know, they're envisioning a world where there is some kind of rise in living standards and in conditions for even the poor people and the working people, which is why they could entertain the expansion of the suffrage and eventually decide to do it. Under slavery, under serfdom, under those other systems, you would never give the workers any kind of role because you've subjected them to such a, a, a miserable status that the ruling class could not imagine that any positive political contribution could come from a class lowered to such a condition. Right, uh, you know, with Nietzsche imagining kind of the ultimate resentment, the ultimate kind of unproductive hatred and animus coming from such a class. Right, the classical liberals are able to envision a more productive role for workers and and uh, lower classes in society because they're imagining that they're going to do this wonderful Hegelian cultural enveloping, which is going to lift them all up. Right. And what has happened in the last 50 years or so is that we've kind of decided that we're not going to continue doing that with poor and working people. We're going to lumpenize them. We're going to get rid of the unions, weaken the unions, break the community bonds, which enabled them to come together and form you know, uh, political positions and to act politically. And so we are taking apart and degrading the culture of ordinary people. And we're lumpenizing them. We're turning them into a lumpen proletariat, which isn't able to act politically in any kind of, of, uh, of collective sense. And then we go, well, you know, now that we've done all of these things to these people, isn't it a problem that they're engaged in politics? Isn't it a problem that they vote and that they vote for people that we don't like and that they uh, don't vote the way that we think they ought to vote? And it, the liberals have kind of forgotten that the expansion of the suffrage was predicated on sharing culture with ordinary people. It was predicated on on sharing real education, not just a kind of university degree that's job training with ordinary people, and, and with gradually expanding these things out and, and raising living standards. And uh, of course, that was never sustainable within the capitalist framework. And because it was never sustainable within the capitalist framework, the liberals eventually abandoned those things. But they remain firmly committed to the idea that we should involve these classes in society, while they also remain committed increasingly to lumpenizing them and making it so they can't politically contribute in a productive way. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And the thing is, it's like, so, so we have the aesthetic, you know, the aesthetics, the actual, you know, in inclusion of people has been... Um, abandoned in favour of the aesthetics of emancipation. And so we have progressivism, which is a very capitalistic ideology, as much as it is heartwarming and nice, because it is not about engaging in the here and now and engaging in the emancipatory present. It's about selling off the present for a future that we know absolutely where we're going, you know, Obama's right side of history, but we, we cannot predict the future. We absolutely cannot predict the future, the out of Minerva and all of that. But what we have done is to excuse the absolute rapacious lumpenization of, of poorer people. We have to have, we have to use the aesthetics of progress or the aesthetics of political moralism to, to get away with it. And obviously this is part of the reason why tech has been so convincing. We erode the social safety net because this is the right thing to do. This is the right side of history. This is all good. This is all about these 
aesthetics of emancipation. And then what we also do is we cast those who are most oppressed in society as the most privileged, which is absolutely And the, the relationship has flipped. It used to be that we were going to use material means to uplift the culture of poorer people so that their inclusion within politics would not be uh, a problem and could even be very generative and positive. Mm -hmm. And now we use the fact that they are culturally not uh, in alignment with liberal culture as a justification for denying them the economic means by which yeah. they previously would have participated in that culture. But, I mean, doesn't this come back to the question of um, politics as aesthetics then? Because it's kind of, you know, if we accept the, the sort of logic of the PMC, the professional middle class, and, you know, um, Catherine Liu has been writing about this recently in Virtue Hoarders, and, you know, the, in a way the kind of perpetuation or the reproduction of the middle class or, you know, kind of academic or sort of educated um, culture, um, of course, depends upon exclusion. And of course, of course, depends upon a, a kind of radical separation, almost at the, the level of everyday objects, right? So the bread that you eat, for example, you know, the class politics of bread, you know, and let's not forget Brecht's wonderful quote about first bread, then morals. Um, <laughs> but the idea that, you know, in a way, and and you might feel guilty about this. You might feel guilty that you have these sort of middle class tastes and you, you go to these middle class areas and you read these middle class books and, you know, somehow try to compensate for your guilt in terms of, you know, by, by being a good person in other ways or by philanthropy or charity or volunteering or activism. And I suppose it's something like, you know, what happens when... Yeah, when these when these kind of divisions are played out primarily at the level of culture and aesthetics and not at the level of um, economics or solidarity on the basis of something like a shared humanity, you know, where, where that division, that class division at the level of culture becomes um, absolutely dominant. And the problem with the culture war narrative is it's like it seems inescapable because the problem is, you know, it, it starts to seem like this kind of, I don't know, overwhelming behemoth of that everything can be run or seen in this way. And, and you get to this position where people are taking a position, not because they've really thought about the position, but because it's against what they think the right would believe. Or when they see, let's say, Christians arguing one thing, then they argue the opposite. Or, you know, it's, it's against what they're socially rewarded for in their own circles. If you travel in professional circles, you are rewarded for having this particular view. Mm. And if you travel in worker circles, your peers will reward you for having particular views. Uh, and, and it just becomes a self-reinforcing thing where to deviate from it is to be socially penalized too heavily in all sorts of ways. There, there's something I've actually noticed recently about um, certain aesthetic things in terms of, uh, you know, artistic production or say what we see in magazines. And a lot of stuff that is promoted is stuff that 20 years ago, in terms of what the value of something, you know, on the front of a magazine might be, um, is quite shocking and quite intellectually like, um, you know, it says something, you know, like this is not, this is just, this is a change. And how is this operating sort of on an ideological level? And there is something which is almost the biggest fuck you that it is to the opposite um, way of seeing the world. So for instance, you might have a, mo a Vogue cover that um, is now defining itself, not, not in terms of, you know, um, the eliteness of somebody who is so thin and it has taken so long to, to hone that, the body or is so famous or so celebrated for a given skill or, you know, was born one in a million in terms of beauty or whatever. It's more a cultural stance that is the greatest challenge to the aesthetic values of the lumpen that it doesn't like. So, you know, you might have Harry Styles in a dress or somebody who wouldn't usually be wearing, that, you know, wasn't associated historically with wearing couture, wearing couture with a sort of quite, I don't know if you've noticed as well, you see this a lot in music videos um, and sort of these, you know, you get these online videos from things like the New York Times that are sort of very aesthetically done and about certain like cultural social issues and you have somebody of a given group staring down the camera quite aggressively in terms of like this is me this is me and it is it is this trend and you do notice that it is off, and it's also it's also on the right you know the other way around that what is being elevated as 
culturally important and wow, and this is amazing, and isn't it brilliant and isn't so brave, is precisely what is just going to piss off the other aesthetic group. Mm. Right. What we're lauding is is trampling on and making fun of other people's values. Yeah. Uh, on both sides of the cultural war, what's being valued is is the mockery of things other people care about. Exactly. Whereas I think what what was going on in the mid nineties and in this film is is almost like the kind of um, the mockery of everyone equally. You yeah. know, and this was a kind of position that a lot of comedians had. It was like no one is exempt from um, being mocked, including myself. You know that. And to go back to the friend enemy distinction, it's like um, you know what happens when we think of ourselves uh, to ourselves as a friend and an enemy. Like in a way, we both are a friend and an enemy to ourselves. Like we we repeatedly do things that are um, self-destructive or, you know, we might have a negative impression of ourselves or a feeling about ourselves in particular ways at the same time as we kind of want what's in our best interest sometimes. You know, in a way we are, we are you know, not only split subjects in that way, but, you know, what would it be like to kind of understand oneself as politically divided too? Um, and And I think this idea of being able to laugh at oneself is something that's that's very difficult for a lot of people to do today. That they would, I think, a lot of people would think that it would cost them too much to be able to laugh at themselves or to mock themselves. You know that it's somehow a skill or a kind of um, thing that some seems to be diminishing somehow. I mean, there's this absolute great seriousness to everything. And the thing is, it's like, you know, when we look back to, I, I gave the example of Harry Styles and Address, and I've got nothing against, in fact, I'm very pro things like drag and drag culture and what it was saying and what's, what it's doing. And it's, but there is something about embodying a contradiction, you know, mm -hmm. as in like exposing difference or exposing a contradiction. But it's when it becomes this, that those things that were used to point out difference or contradiction or or what or, or being left out are turned into a weapon of um all-knowing uh moral discipline as in like this is the right way to do things you know like you know as in 90s madonna or something compared to like somebody who's like mimicking that today and it's all sort of like the people when we see these images on the front of magazines it's not like oh, we're challenging, you know, it might look like we're challenging ways of dress or turning something new, or isn't it silly that we all wear a necktie or whatever, but it's turning and, you know, how that is, it used to be a symbol of corporate power or something, but it's turning that into this riling that is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely not artistic at all. Unless it's committed to some kind of material change, a subversive cultural act is just a way of spitting on other people's values, and it can easily be co-opted and become the new the new thing. Absolutely. Because it's just the inverse of the dominant culture rather than a real alternative to it. Uh, a real alternative to it would also have to be an alternative to the political economy, which generates the dominant culture. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you have a different face of the same thing. Aesthetics is not enough. It has to be aesthetics emerging from something material. And aesthetics are just perfect corporate fodder. You know, to The problem is that aesthetics is what's visible. So mm -hmm. every time we get used to spotting certain aesthetics as a way of papering over, new aesthetics are invented exactly. which can accomplish the same purpose and which will seem initially to be genuinely subversive. And I think the thing that we really have to pay attention to is, are these movements in any way meaningfully connected to any kind of material change in the economic structure of the society? And if they're not, we should be really skeptical of their utility, because it's happened so many times now for decade after decade, these superficial aesthetic movements that pretend to be radical and are then subsumed back into the thing. And it becomes very, very difficult, but it's very easy when we're operating on a purely aesthetic level is to, and this is where the absolutism comes in, the convenient absolutism of this is a protective group or sex or class or whatever, is that you cannot do any analysis or any questioning because in a very patronizing way, we reduce this group to a child, essentially. Um, 
Yeah, it's very worrying. But obviously as well. But it's because the whole frame is not about a you know, real structure of oppression. They call mm. it structural this or structural. <laughs> they don't mean that. It's Liz what Warren really structural. Mean, it, it's a particular relationship between a set of oppressors and a set of oppressed. And if you're in the set of oppressed, then by the rules of this game, you can't be in the set of oppressors. And therefore, you can't be to blame for anything bad. And therefore, the system, the bad elements of the system can't work through you. So whatever you're doing can't be subject to the same kind of system critique, which is which the oppressor would be subject to. And it comes from an individualized way of thinking of this, where there are particular people who are the bad people and particular people who are the good people. It's a fundamentally anti-structural Absolutely. way of thinking about Absolutely. the problem. And yet it goes under the name structural this, structural. It's not mm. structural. There's nothing structural about it. I don't think there's been very much in the way of serious structural thinking in mainstream academic culture since the 80s. Yeah. Oh, I'm completely. I mean, I think the last great innovations may, maybe were coming on the theories of ideology and people like Althusser and the kind of inescapability of ideology, as it were, like ideology is eternal in a certain way. And this kind of attempt to think about Spinoza and, and you know, a kind of aleatory materialism. Um, in the late Althusser, but but even then, I mean, it's yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it goes back to the Judith um, Sklar point about moral cruelty. You know, if you think you're exempt, you're very likely to to be, in fact, incredibly sadistic. You know that actually the sadism of the pure victim is absolutely destructive. You know, and of course, like you know, it's obvious that a lot of the uh, you know whether it's left or right wing political movements are. The moment they're predicated on resentment and the friend-enemy distinction in that you're allowed to hate this other group and the other group is somehow responsible for all of your bad feelings um, and you're in the right, you know, of course, it permits the most horrific violence um, immediately. And yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I was saying in, in my intervention at the beginning, that like this effort, this enemy scapegoat mechanism works in the same mode as fantasy. And religion mm. is the thing that permits good people to do absolutely anything. You know, when you have that religious, futuristic, utopian thinking justified by a fantasy, you can literally convince anybody to do anything. And the funny thing, you know, you've said this so many times in your about how we are all complicated, how we don't know, we don't know <laughs> ourselves, we're both good and bad. And one thing that I really liked about this film was that the baddie, the murderer at the beginning, the child murderer, was, you know, he was actually, so he got, he was the victim of this group of smug liberal whatever's but he was actually a murderer you know it wasn't like he was a completely innocent either and I, I really like that you know um mm. you can be you can be both a victim sometimes and an exertor of victim of of exploitation another and um you know absolutely this idea as well like the liz the liz warren version of structuralism the thing that has been really annoying you see this like structural this structural that coming out big structural bailey or something she like named her dog or like a she went around with like a this big inflatable dog plinth thing and it was called big structure anyway um but it's like with these over the summer, there's this last year, there's this thing of, you know, these different types of racism, conscious racism, like subconscious or structural racism. And what, what happens is because the way of thinking or the way of critiquing or the way of analyzing aesthetically isn't working with, you know, the approach, it's so convenient to use a word like structural to say, well, you can't really see it, but we all know it's there. When it's like, oh, no, there is something there. There is a material thing. That is structural, but it's not an invention because you're using this word to explain something that doesn't really. In yeah. many ways, the move to make it more theological makes it work better because mm -hmm. it makes it more like religion. Yeah, you can't you can't just prove it. <laughs> if you invent a new word or you invent a new concept that's challenging enough, you can't challenge it. But also, as well, you know this. Um, I that you know you've got to do the work and you've got to be educated and you've got to do this. It's it's highly highly exclusionary, you know. As as you know, in the Bourdieuian sense, taste and class. It's like the more effort, you know, we call it received pronunciation in the UK because you have to be educated into speaking in a certain way, <laughs> you know. So it is absolutely exclusionary. It's absolutely non-universal, and there is, you know, obviously there are these. Um, identitarian outbursts on the right as well um, and they're not always just coming from a lumpen position they're also coming from people who feel economically threatened or humiliated across the spectrum and other reasons as well um, but there is already a knowingness about the uh, what universalism is in relation to capitalism from those who are who are those who are actually excluded from capitalism 
um, and those who are ex actually excluded from capitalism. It can shift at times and it can shift in terms of which jobs are classed as this and the other. But yeah. A big part of it is that because we live in a society of mass culture, as we have a more lumpenized, more vulnerable mass, the culture which is made for that mass and which increasingly permeates elite culture as well is more and more geared toward those same kinds of animuses which emerge from the resentments of the mass. So I think to a very large degree, the elite culture is no longer distinctly elite in any meaningful sense. It has become a response to the various resentments which come out of the mass culture and therefore has become really a part of it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, a libidinal one. You can't have one without the other. Right. And so, you know, people say all the time, well, some of these people who are very right wing, well, they're not, you know, working class, Benjamin. So clearly, you know, class in the economy doesn't have anything to do with it. The whole culture that we are living in is shaped by this set of resentments and the counter-resentments which go in reverse in response to it. And so it, the elite has a fear of being consumed by the fire that it has created in the miserable people that it, it stops on. And that elite is then full of worries about what may come out of that, and that motivates the elite to be fearful and to have a culture that is based on, on promulgating fears of varying kinds. And so we aren't able to escape this. We just get the same stuff hurled back and forth. And the trouble is, unless we find an economic way out to diffuse the root causes of all of this, there is no purely cultural answer to it. Mm. There's um, the eliteness of um, of uh, moralism, you know. So is Zizek has this really funny joke, which is like um, in a synagogue and you have sort of the a wealthy, uh, there's like a, a, a high priest and a wealthy um, merchant and and then, you know, sort of a, somebody who's cleaning the synagogue or something. It's a Jewish joke and I can't remember the exact figures, but it's like you have the high priest saying, God, God, I am not worthy. Sorry, I'm not worthy. Please let me absolve myself of my sins. And the, wealth, the wealthy merchant say, God, I'm not worthy of your wondrous, you know. And then the cleaner or whatever says, Oh God, God, I'm not worthy. And they're like, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> you know, there is sort of this um, who gets to be the absolver of all of the issues. Who who becomes the high priest of this theological reaction to um, as as a defence against uh, viewing what the real material issues are? Priesthoods are very lucrative things if you can build one out of you know they're very lucrative things when the when Christianity was getting going in the Roman state, a lot of Roman elite families were quite surprised that some of their children wanted to be bishops. Uh, they didn't quite understand what's the point of being a bishop. Well, as it turned out, the bishops were increasingly powerful and their children who decided, ah, the elite path is to be a bishop. We're not always making the wrong choice, even from within a Roman paradigm of pursue influence and power and money. Uh, and many of the Roman parents were able to eventually come around on the idea that their kids should be bishops. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is something we can discuss in part two, but it's it's quite interesting, the acephalic um, nature of today's sort of contemporary culture, the, the kind we're talking about, because in a way there isn't really a leader, there's no set text, there's no little red book, there's no kind of um, charismatic uh, cult of personality leader, perhaps, you know, there are kind of grifters and sort of figureheads here and there who are maybe promulgating some of this um uh, ideology, but yeah, I mean this this kind of headless nature of contemporary things is quite important, I think. Yeah, and it's also really interesting who gets elevated to the state of prophet. You know, it's when there is somebody who aesthetically concretizes or embodies certain things that we all know are the values. So it might be, but well, I can think of one, a number of individuals right now, but I maybe won't say specifically because I don't think it's their fault. I think it's more of a structural actual structural thing but yeah you get these individuals <laughs> who are cast as these brilliant young geniuses but, but it's precisely because they happen to touch on they happen to become these fetish objects for this movement they really sort of embody these um these beliefs yeah or sort of justify and prove them yeah perhaps that will be the theme for our patreon generals without armies and armies without generals friends and enemies in a world that's acid all right Thanks, guys, so much for listening. Do do come and listen to our B-side if you like. And have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.